0: Episode 7, Law in the News, Jury Instructions, and the McMichaels Trial. The 4 Legal English podcast is now in session. On today's docket, we'll discuss the recent trial of the McMichaels for the murder of Ahmad Arbery. We'll focus on the judge's instructions to the jury regarding the citizen's arrest. A major issue of this case was the statute for citizen's arrest, which is ambiguous or confusing. We'll also talk about jury instructions. Where do they come from? How does the court decide on them and and how they were used? Welcome to the 4 Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. I'm Timothy Barrett, your host. I'm a former practicing attorney in the U.S. I was a police officer as well as prosecutor, and then I worked in civil law. I now teach law in Tbilisi, Georgia. This is episode 7 of the 4 Legal English Podcast. Please check out our website. 4 is in the number 4 Legal English. Dot com, for legalenglish.com. On the docket today, Law in the News, Jury Instructions in the McMichaels Trial. So in this episode, we'll discuss the recent trial of the McMichaels for the murder of Ahmad Arbery. We'll talk a lot about jury instructions in general, and specifically the judge's instructions in this trial regarding citizen's arrest. This was a complicated case. It involves three people. Two of them are McMichaels, and then another was a neighbor or friend who were stopping a burglary suspect who was suspected of committing burglaries over possibly a few months in that neighborhood, in that area. While waiting for the police to arrive, there's an altercation, and the suspect is shot and killed. This case hinges on if the citizen's arrest was lawful, then the shootings were lawful. If the arrest was unlawful, then the shootings were unlawful. So a major question for the jury to decide is were the defendants acting lawfully when they stopped Ahmad Arbery? If they did, then they were probably justified in, in shooting. If they were not acting lawfully, then the shootings were probably unlawful. I don't want to get into a lot of the details of the case. You know, we could spend a lot of time on that. I will, in the show notes, put some links to some different news articles, as well as some LawTube analysis. If you want to know more about the case, you can check out those links. So let's start by talking about jury instructions in general. What are jury instructions? These are instructions given by the court, the judge, to the jury. Normally, at the very beginning of trial, they will get some jury instructions telling them basically how to behave during the trial. When they go for breaks, the judge will often give them an instruction not to talk about the case, not to share their thoughts with other people, even other jurors when they're in the jury room, they they usually are not supposed to be talking about the case unless the case is over, because the court doesn't want the jurors to make a decision before all of the evidence is heard. Throughout the trial, the judge will give certain instructions to the jury. During the course of the trial, often one lawyer will object, and that may be sustained or overruled, and sometimes the judge will give instruction to the jury at that time. He might look at the jury and say, ignore the question and maybe ignore the answer if it was given. That should not be considered when you decide the case. But the biggest part of the jury instructions is at the end of the trial. And this is usually given to the jury either before the closing arguments or after the closing arguments. Trials that I've done, I've I've seen it done both ways. I think it's probably better to give it before the closing arguments because then the jury will have heard what the law is and then can kind of use that possibly when they're listening to the arguments of the attorneys. And then when they go in to deliberate, the last thing that they've heard was the closing arguments, not the jury instructions. The jury instructions are usually not very interesting to listen to. When I was a prosecutor, one of us would have a trial. A lot of the other prosecutors or even the, the staff in the office would go down to hear the closing arguments. Whenever the closing arguments were before the jury instructions, the gallery, the seating, you know, might be half full. There's lots of people from the prosecutor's office, maybe the public defender's office, you know, other lawyers that are nearby, It's always interesting to hear the closing arguments, but then as soon as the closing arguments stop and the judge starts to read the jury instructions, almost everybody in the audience leaves the courtroom. After you've heard them a couple of times, it's kind of boring to sit through the judge reading the jury instructions to the jury. Now, where do these instructions come from? Most of the time, the judge will use model jury instructions. So each state or jurisdiction may have a different way of doing this It could be the state Supreme Court or a committee set up by the state Supreme Court, but usually there'll be organization that will come up with model instructions. And so these instructions are for common issues that will come up. Maybe it's considering certain types of witnesses, certain type of testimony or evidence, or common criminal offenses. Defendant is accused of this crime, then you read this instruction. And often they can be tailored for this case, so the model instructions might have If a criminal trial might have, you know, in brackets, the defendant or the victim, or maybe a date, and then you tailor it for this trial. Some things might not be relevant from the model instructions, so you might delete some paragraphs or sentences if they don't apply to this case, to your case. And, of course, there may be some issues that are not very common or or some criminal offenses that are not very common. In those circumstances, somebody needs to write jury instructions, you know, from scratch, from nothing or perhaps looking at other model jury instructions and and changing them quite a bit to match this circumstance. Normally, the plaintiff's attorney or in a criminal case, the prosecutor will prepare the proposed jury instructions. And again, using the model jury instructions in whatever custom instructions are, are going to be proposed. Often the defense attorney will just comment on the prosecutor's proposed instructions. They usually don't propose their own, or if there's a custom one that they want to propose, that they would draft that and propose that. And of course, often they're just arguing from the model instructions. You know, Even if the prosecutor doesn't think that we should include this one, we do want to include it. So after counsel for both sides gives their proposed jury instructions, it's up to the judge to decide what to charge with the jury. Remember, the judge is the finder of law. So part of the judge's role in a jury trial is to explain the law to the jury. It's not the jury's responsibility to discover the law or to figure out the law or to argue the law one way or the other. The jury is just trying to find facts. The judge's role is to explain the law to the jury and then have the jury apply this law to the facts that they believe. Often jury instructions can be an appellate issue. If the wrong instructions are given, then the judge is explaining incorrectly the law to the jury. So this is obviously an appellate issue. And a lot of times when a jury trial is appealed, the appellate court, whether it's civil or, or criminal, it doesn't really matter. They're reluctant to say the jury made a mistake because that's not really the court's role However, if the appellate court can say the judge made a mistake, and that's why the jury found this way, you know, guilty or not guilty, whichever way they found, or improper instructions were given, and therefore it, was, it should be a mistrial. Most of the time, lawyers don't spend a lot of time thinking about jury instructions. You know, If you have a, a trial that you're preparing for, of course you have to have the, the jury instructions prepared beforehand, but you have so many other things that you need to focus on. You have to line up your witnesses, Think about what your arguments should be, what do you want from each witness, have the exhibits or physical evidence ready, photographs, other things, make sure it's tagged and ready to be received into evidence. So it's very easy to kind of as little amount of time on the jury instructions as is necessary, which can cause problems later on. If you're enjoying today's episode, please subscribe, give us five stars, and a review. It would really help us out. Go to the website, four is in the number four, legalenglish.com, legalenglish.com. You can check out our blog articles, see the show notes for this podcast episode, and look at some available courses. If you're looking to improve your legal English, then you may consider our Elemental Legal English course. Or even our conversational course. Our conversational course is one-on-one tutoring with me, Timothy Barrett, the instructor. If you're looking to improve your lingual English, please check out the website for more details. So let's go back to the McMichaels trial. On Friday, they were going through the proposed jury instructions with the idea that they would be issued to the jury on Monday... And there was one jury instruction that the defense objected to. And because there was three defendants, there's actually three defense counsels. You know, each defendant has his own attorney. One of the defense attorneys actually said to the court that by issuing this instruction, quote, you are directing a verdict for the state, unquote. Meaning by that, giving this instruction to the jury, you're telling the jury you, know, you have to declare the defendants guilty. You know, it doesn't make any, any sense to do anything else which was, of course, a very strong objection. There was a statute that was ambiguous. You could interpret it different ways. In fact, the lawyers were arguing about it, and the judge had to rule on it. So it's kind of unclear how would the jury interpret this statute. In, in fact, the prosecutor was arguing the law how to interpret this statute in the closing arguments, which was pretty unusual. Remember, the jury is the finder of fact. The judge is the finder of law. Normally, the judge will interpret the law and instruct the jury on the law. The jury, as finder of fact, will consider the evidence, the testimony of the witnesses, the physical exhibits, the photographs, videos, things like that, and then will determine what actually happened, what were the facts of the case, and then apply the law to those facts. So the questionable jury instruction concerned the citizen's arrest statute. So let's talk a little bit about what is a citizen's arrest. So normally, when we think of an arrest, we think of the police arresting a suspect, arresting someone that's accused of a crime. In common law in the United States, a citizen, a regular person, can also make an arrest. Now they could have this authority just under the, under the common law without a specific statute, but a lot of states have a statute have codified much of the common law. This statute was actually written during the American Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865. And reading it today, it's somewhat ambiguous. It's kind of difficult to understand what is meant. There are two sentences in this statute, but do they apply together, or are they independent of each other? They apply in different circumstances. Let me read the statute to you. Quote, The private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, unquote. So we have here some terms that are maybe not in legal English terms, or maybe the terms 150 years ago were a little bit different. So today we might have different terms for these same meanings, which kind of adds to the confusion a little bit as well. But it has private person may arrest an offender. So private person, we usually call this the citizen's arrest. And of course, they don't have to be a citizen. It could be a, an immigrant, a visitor arre- coming to the United States. They would still have this, but we call it a citizen's arrest. An offender is someone who committed an offense. And in common law in the United, and in the United States, we separate crimes between misdemeanors and felonies. Felonies are more serious crimes misdemeanors are less serious. And the statute also talks about reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. So in American law, we have reasonable suspicion and we have probable cause. And probable cause is often defined as reasonable grounds to believe a crime has been committed, committed by this person. So reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, it could be problematic as well. In modern legal English, would this mean reasonable suspicion or? Probable cause. Reasonable suspicion is usually required for a police officer to stop a person. Probable cause is required for the police officer to arrest the person. So probable cause is a much higher level. The defense argued that the two sentences are separate conditions. So that maybe the first one can apply. If the first one doesn't apply, then maybe the second one applies. So you look at them kind of independently. The prosecutor, on the other hand, argued that the conditions of both sentences must be met. So in other words, when you're looking at these two sentences, should it be either one or two, or does it have to be one and two? The judge rejected the defense interpretation, although he did modify the prosecutor's proposed instructions. Andrew Branca is a lawyer in the United States who specializes in self-defense law, and he has a website, lawofselfdefense.com. I'll put links in the show notes. But he argues that the two sentences should be read independently. So either the first sentence or the second sentence, but you don't need the first and second sentence. So I want to quote him, quote, So my reading of this citizen's arrest statute is that the first sentence refers to arrest premised on a misdemeanor offense, and the second sentence refers to arrest premised on a felony offense. Close quote. In that reading certainly does make sense. It's logical. Now, in response to the prosecution argument that the conditions of both sentences must be met, Andrew Branca really rejects that argument. Let me quote from Andrew Branca again. Quote, This construction makes no sense to me, if only from a public policy perspective. Why? Because it makes it easier to make a citizen's arrest to constrain a person's liberty if they've merely committed a misdemeanor, like shoplifting, than if they've committed a heinous felony, like murder, that doesn't make sense to me, close quote. It's hard to argue against the logic in that. When we talk about construction, he said, this construction makes no sense to me. Construction is a legal English term that we use if it's the verb to construe. But how do we interpret this statute? So statutory construction, the interpretation or understanding of statutes, or contract construction, how do we construe this contract, or treaty construction, how do we construe this treaty. For any of those texts, if it is ambiguous, if it's a little bit confusing, it's unclear, then we have to have some kind of rules, some kind of understanding of how to interpret it, how to construe it. Another argument he brings up is the, the common law doctrine of lenity which is the idea that if a statute is ambiguous, then we must construe it for the benefit of the defendant because it is the state that drafted the statute. The state wrote the statute. So if there's a problem with the statute, if it could be interpreted two different ways, the court has an obligation to construe it in the most generous way towards the defendant. There's another LawTube lawyer, a lawyer on, on YouTube, Nate the Lawyer. I'll provide links in the show notes to him. But if you go on YouTube and search for Nate the Lawyer or Andrew Branca, Law of Self-Defense, you can find both of them there. Nate the Lawyer had several videos about this trial. If you're interested in this trial, you can check out his videos. And he doesn't go as far as Andrew Branca in, in making that the judge's instructions were patently wrong. But he does make it clear, he does agree that this is a kind of a directed verdict for the prosecution. So that's normally not how we do things in a courtroom. But he does make it clear that the judge's ruling on this jury instruction really undercut the whole defense argument that they built the whole trial and their trial defense on. So let's review some of the terms that we talked about today. We talked about arrest, citizen's arrest. Reasonable suspicion, probable cause, jury instructions, doctrine of lenity, ambiguous ambiguity, to construe or construction, finder of fact, finder of law. Do you understand the terms and the legal English words that we use today? If not, comment in the show notes and we'll explain it in a new post. Thank you for listening to Episode 7, Law in the News, Jury Instructions, and McMichael's Case of the 4 Legal English Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do me a favor and subscribe. Give us five stars and a great review. It would really help us out. This is only our seventh episode. We're just getting started. But please let us know that you like it and please share it with your friends. We hope these podcasts will be entertaining for you to listen to, but also helps you improve your legal English. Go to our website, 4 as in the number 4, LegalEnglish, no spaces or dashes, .com, 4LegalEnglish.com. Check out our blog articles and our available courses and our show notes. You can comment on the show notes. This is a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. If you are looking to improve your legal English skills, then please check our website regularly and consider one of our courses. The 4 Legal English Podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next Docket Call.